Welcome back to the Nowhere Office. I'm Julia Hobsbawm. And I'm Stefan Stern. Today we're going to look at how the Nowhere Office is and will be managed. The big one. Yes, with all the flexible working opportunities that this new hybrid working can bring us, it's also inevitably raising some tricky uh, questions for workplace managers. Coming up in today's episode. There are certain tasks like reading, thinking, writing that are better done not with a million people chatting all around you. And there are other tasks like, you know, creating ideas, working on things together that are better done together. So for me, it's how do you launch productivity measures that don't feel alien to a workforce that's not necessarily used to them? And to do that, I think, as leaders, we need to put ourselves in our people's shoes and think, how would I want to be treated if it was me? I have no doubt some organisations can work very, very well remotely and probably better than in an office, but that's not universal either. So I think the whole thing depends on a broadening of the conversation. An array of voices from right across the spectrum of the world of work. First, you heard from Ben Page, CEO of Ipsos Mori, who will give us his wonderful perspective from the back of a cab later on in the episode. And then you heard from our two panelists today. First, Joanna Swash, the group CEO of Moneypenny, a member of the Forbes Business Council. And she'll be joined by an expert of office design and management and publisher of Workplace Insight, Mark Eltringham. In between all that, our resident Nowhere Office expert, Judy Hobsbawm, will give us a rundown of her working life. So without further ado, it's over to Julia and today's panel. So Joanna, you're joining us, I believe, in a studio from the CBI, which is also racing to uh, capture the zeitgeist. What's in your mind at the moment? Where, where are we in terms of management and leadership in the Nowhere Office? I think just generally where we are as leaders and and companies individually is we are at a point of saying, what is next? How does the world need to operate going forward? We've almost got this blank sheet of paper that it's time to reimagine now what our worlds look like. I'm very aware that we came into this pandemic, all moved to home working in probably two or three weeks, you know, amazing what we made happen. But it is time now to take a step back and think, What's my scalable business model going forward? And how do I go and engage with and deliver the right services to all the different stakeholder groups? Mark, you've published just now the sixth edition of In Magazine with a tremendously interesting editorial in which you say that really we should be switching our focus away from the setting of the place of work to the culture. That's what's happening, isn't it? A huge culture shift. Well, well, possibly. I mean, I think the way that I framed it in, in a few conversations recently is to say that we used to see sort of office design as some sort of a solution to cultural problems. And it, you know, it, it helps, you know, but, it, you know, it, it's, it's not really the solution to it. And I, I, I worry now that there's too much focus on locations still and less on culture. I had a very interesting conversation with a guy called Ben Weber last week of, of an organization called Humanites. And we were discussing about how you've really got to address the cultural issues and, and not just expect that allowing people to work from home will solve that. So the, the, the firms and the organizations that have made remote work work are the ones that have a good working culture anyway. So if anybody's got any problems with remote work or office work or something like that, it tends to be more rooted in culture 
than than the location. And I I think I'd like to see the conversation move on a little bit from this obsession with home versus office. I think that's that would be very productive. Uh, Joanna, I think you you were nodding away. Yes, you know, at the start of the pandemic, it really shocked me how passionately I felt. If somebody had asked me in the past, why has Money Penny got such a great business culture? I'd have said, we've got amazing offices. Look at this space that everybody works in. We've got a pub. It's all inclusive. You know, we've got this amazing, incredible environment designed by our own staff. What I learned was that our culture was so strong that it wasn't just based on the office. It wasn't just based on the physical environment, but it was based on that whole community feel and how people trust each other. Uh, it should have been obvious to me, but that was a really big learning at the start of the pandemic. You've just published a really interesting piece of research, haven't you, showing that opinion amongst different stakeholders around this question of location is evenly divided. Tell us about that. those findings. They, they were very surprising to me. And we were looking very much at the difference in age groups, for example, when we were looking at this, this study. And it was coming out very, very much that it's, it's the younger generation could not wait to get back into the office. They felt that it was really hard for them at home. It was lovely to think, to start with, that they didn't have to go in and they could actually work in their pyjamas. But this was the generation that needed that presence of other people. It wasn't just a job. It was a social life. It was getting out of their homes. Quite often they were living with parents. And that was the first group of people for us that actually wanted to come back and be engaged with their teams. Although the other research indicates that the young demand the right to work flexibly. What your data showed that struck me was that there was a clear three-way divide between companies absolutely planning to offer full remote by a third, those saying there ain't going to be no remote by a third, and hybrid. I mean, Mark, how do we make sense of the fact that there's almost a truth in every perspective going on here, if you want to latch on to one of them. I think that might come down to the narrowness of the conversation we've been having for the past year and a bit. And people perhaps, there are, there are a number of myths have grown up about this. And, and I think perhaps the major one is, and this, this comes back to Joanna's point, the conversation has been dominated by certain demographics. So it's people with established careers, probably with a bit of space, to have a home office or, or create one in the garden or a bedroom or, or convert a bedroom, something like that, tend to be people, you know, who who have their established networks and careers and probably living in, in the southeast of England, commuting into London. So that the commuting is a major problem that they have to deal with on a daily basis. And, and those are all important problems, but they're only for certain people. And I think what would benefit the whole conversation now is to acknowledge that's not everybody's experience of work. And so you can't judge just on, on the experience of those people. And so young people, I think, I, I've heard this so many times over the past year and a half about them wanting to go into work, but, but at the same time wanting more control about when and, 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 and where that is. And I think it's affected women unevenly. And there are obviously certain roles as well. I mean, I've, I think one of the other myths that I've, I've sort of come across quite frequently is this idea that you do focused work at home and then you go into the office to collaborate and socialise. And actually, depending on people's circumstances, that can be reversed, <laughs> you know, and, and so you shouldn't believe all the standard forms of the narrative around these sorts of issues, because some people need to go into work for focus because they don't get it at home. 
And so I think the challenge for organizations is to say, right, how do we create cultures and, and places where the office isn't going away, whatever some people might have you, you say. Some people, could, you know, I, I have no doubt some organizations can work very, very well remotely and probably better than in an office, but that's not universal either. So I think the whole thing depends on a broadening of the conversation. Is it is it a problem too, Mark, that, you know, some bosses, frankly, hear what you're saying and are worried that it might sound a bit too much like democracy for their liking. They're going to have to listen to, I mean, certainly consult, but meaningfully consult with a lot of people and offer a really balanced portfolio of options for people. Well, I, I think that is that is a problem. And I think it's uh, my understanding of what is, is called hybrid working is that you say, OK, people come into the office for three days and they're at home for two days or whatever, you know, combination, you know, I, I think that is still trying to impose times and places on people. And, and the real challenge, as it has been for many years, is to offer flexible working rather than hybrid working. And you say, OK, well, you choose and we'll manage you better. and We'll create a culture that allows you to make those decisions. So some week you might, some weeks you might be in the office five days and, you know, another week, not at all, you know, and, and allow people to do that as parts of teams or as individuals. And, and that's, I think, how you, you, you will get, get this matchup between what people want and, and what the organization can offer them. And it's, it's obviously a difficult thing to manage because the easiest thing to do is to just get them all in a building together, isn't it? At, at set times. <laughs> and then you, you, well, you probably think, you know, what's going on, but I mean, you've seen the emergence of some other forms of toxic culture that are based on that lack of trust in people, you know, in particular remote surveillance. And I, I, I also worry about the way that, that firms are measuring productivity more than they were before the pandemic as well. That, that bothers me. There, and there are lots of little things like that where you're just thinking, this isn't really solving the problem. It might be shifting it, but it's not, it's not solving it. I would agree. I think I take a step back from my perspective is that I've got three stakeholder, three core stakeholder groups that I need to make sure that I keep happy. Yes, it's all about the employee, the member of the team and creating a very unique personalized work experience that absolutely suits them and their lifestyle and what they expect. I also have to make sure that the business is taken into account. What does the business need? We need to be productive, efficient, deliver a great service level. But similarly, what do my clients need? We have, we are taking calls at 25,000 different businesses across the UK. Not all of those are going to want their money penny receptionist to be sat at home. Some of them, a big law firm, for example, may actually say, I need my receptionist sat at Moneypenny's office. It's really important to me. So I've got to go and balance all these different opinions here uh, and make sure that we're coming up with a solution that suits everybody. In terms of productivity, we in the past, well, we still manage by trust. We recruit the right people, give them the tools, the resources, the clarity and the freedom, go and do a great job. But we have to, as a business, we need to know if they're as productive at home as they are in, in the office. We can't have that as an unpleasant surprise in six months as a result of rolling out a hybrid model. So for me, it's how do you launch productivity measures that don't feel alien to a workforce that's not necessarily used to them? And to do that, I think as leaders, we need to put ourselves in our people's shoes and think, how would I want to be treated if it was me? Isn't it also the case that we must be clear that this conversation about the meaning of work, the future of work, the betterment of work, 
didn't start with the pandemic. These tectonic plates were shifting for years and years and years. You could make, I think, quite a feminist point that it was only when the blokes had to work from home, lock, stock and barrel, that they realised that there were all sorts of things that had been, uh, you know, points were being made by others. But the fact is that automation is coming down the track. The fact of the matter is that the culture wars have arrived in the office. The fact of the matter is that the pandemic, if anything, proved a tipping point, but not the starting point. Do you agree, Joanna? I totally agree. Um, we, we did a panel recently with Jeff Hayden and his point was the pandemic hasn't created change. It's just dramatically sped up change that was going to happen anyway. We were already traveling down this route. Um, and I think we have, we have just catapulted ourselves, haven't we, into this next generation of, of what work looks like. So yeah, I think it was inevitable. It's from a technology perspective, it's been a good thing because it's meant that we have just had to pivot, change, be completely flexible and also not aim for perfection. When you create a home working model in two to three weeks, it's not going to be perfect. And I think that's just proved how resilient and motivated we can all be just to make this happen. And, and where next then with the technology? Because actually even this kit we're using now did did exist already, just to emphasise the point that the pandemic didn't magic software out of thin air. We, we could have done meetings like this before, we just chose not to. How can we kind of embed, you know, the intelligent use of technology without that nightmare scenario of displacing, as, as Mark was sort of hinting at, touching on, the idea that we think that machines and algorithms and robots could actually do a hell of a lot of this stuff a bit better than we do, or at least quicker, and at least without grumbling, and at least without taking holidays or wanting pay. So how are we, how are we going to have the sort of humane marriage of technology and human in the future? Well, well, my view on that would be that we need to acknowledge that the conversation has to include everybody. So I think there's a tendency, certainly when you're talking about um, a lot of the conversations I see, you're thinking, well, actually, um, there's this idea that, you know, if you don't give people the, the working cultures they like, they'll go and work somewhere else. And you think, well, yeah, some of them will, but some of them don't really have the, the freedom to choose in that way. And, you know, if, if people are on lower pay, you know, in certain types of jobs and stuff like that, their, their experience of what's coming down the line is going to be very, very different to people who are, you know, earning very, very good money, you know, and have um, transferable skills and so on and so forth. And so my hope would be that we have a conversation that, that includes everybody and not just the masters of the universe. Joanna, are you echoing that or is there such a thing as over-consulting, over-sharing? I, I would echo that in principle. What, I, what I'm very aware of is that there is a likelihood that we create a two-tier culture between people who have got the opportunity to work from home, whether that's because their job lets them, their role is you know, deliverable at home, or those that can't because of their environment, because of how they're living, or because of the role that they have to do, for example, for example, manual labor. We have to be very, very aware, I think, of that split in society, because otherwise you're gonna have a group of people who have got this total freedom, really, to work how and where they want to, and you'll have a different group of people that will be maybe factory-based or having to go into an office for some different reasons. That, I think, is going to be, I have no magic answer to that one, but I do think as leaders, we need to be very aware of that split. Well, Joanna, Mark, thank you very much. We've touched on it. We've opened the can of worms. It's for other people to fish the worms out and make some sense of them. But we've made a very good start, I think, this afternoon. Joanna Swash from Money Penny and Mark Eltringham 
of Workplace Insight. Thanks very much for joining us here today on the Nowhere Office. Thank you. It's been lovely. Thank you. I really enjoyed that panel because it brought to the surface the real nub of so much of what faces management right now. That's this issue of the Nowhere Office. It does go so much further than purely the question of place. This, of course, is the question Julia is uh, grappling with in her work around the Nowhere Office. And so we thought this might be a good time to ask her to tell us about her own shift patterns in the Nowhere Office, as some of our other guests on previous shows, such as Satman Sagir of The Times, has done. So my working life in the Nowhere Office is a mix of running two different businesses. One is really the business of writing about the Nowhere Office. So I do that with my books and my papers and the internet, and I move between my home, different rooms in my home where I have a different headspace, to now it's back open again, the gym, the cafe in the gym where I've actually always written my books. I like the transit side, the movement side of getting in the zone from one headspace to do maybe emails or to move between meetings. And the other bit of work I do is I run Editorial Intelligence, the company that produces podcasts like this. And that requires meetings in person or on Zoom with clients. It involves team members who produce and convene and run back office systems. So that requires a different sort of movement, but it doesn't anymore require an office. I did have an office. I've had offices for lots and lots of time. But actually, even before the pandemic, I realised We don't need a fixed place because, in my view, the coffee shop and the private members club and somebody's house and a corner of an office can be just as good in particular moments to recreate the atmosphere that you need. But I'm rather interested by the idea that the nowhere office really means not so much a place, but a space in which we move our minds and our focus and ourselves in order to get stuff done. So I hope that I'm living and breathing and doing the Nowhere Office without wanting to say that this is the reality that we all live with. You know, the office is made up of hundreds and thousands of different fragmented ways in which we work. And so the exciting thing going forward is how we figure that out. But that's that's my Nowhere Office as of now. The Nowhere Office joins us from a car. How completely perfect. I'm sorry, the traffic's so bad, I'm late. Well, completely on trend for a podcast about the Nowhere Office, we are joined from the middle of nowhere, from a car, by Ben Page of Ipsos Mori, the chief executive of one of the most significant polling businesses around the world. Ben, hello, and where are you? I'm currently just on Chelsea Bridge in London, at the back of a London black cab, and I'm, I'm, I'm very apologetic, but it started raining in, in London, as it does sometimes, and that means that the traffic is really terrible. Did you do it on purpose, though, just to be, you know, really on point for this programme? Not at all. <laughs> not at all. I'd much rather not be in the back of a taxi. Well, the first thing we're talking about is this whole question about where are we with the future of work and the office? I mean, the main, my main thing, which I think is true, is that we have broken the taboo about remote working. 
So we did have remote working before the pandemic, but a lot of people, including bosses and a lot of chief executives, I think were suspicious of it on a large scale. And what the pandemic has shown by forcing everybody, including bosses, to work remotely is that for a lot of businesses, although we mustn't kid ourselves because there are, you know, a large proportion of people can't work remotely even if they want to, but for, but for knowledge workers and administrative workers, you can work remotely and uh, you could probably work remotely for up to a third of the time without losing any productivity at all. And that's, you know, that's a, been, a, been a revelation for, I think, for a lot of organisations. I still think we need offices and, and workers' preferences are, are really, really clear. They do not want to go back to five days a week in an office. That's pretty much universal. Um, around the world, despite varying degrees of ease with which people migrated to remote working when they had a lockdown in their country. And Ben, as a chief executive yourself, do you, do you find, do you think you've had a bit of an epiphany? Have you had to change your Oh no, absolutely. I, was, I always just felt guilty about working at home before the pandemic. So I would, you know, some mornings I'd work at home before, before going to a meeting. But, you know, it's clear that if you're, we've got an, a sort of desk farm type office, which I did to placate my colleagues who all wanted a desk, even though I didn't have very much space rather than sort of hot desking. But um, it's clear that, you know, there are certain tasks like reading, thinking, writing that are better done, not with a million people chatting all around you. And there are other tasks like, I, you know, creating ideas, working on things together that are better done together. And so I think thinking about why, you, you know, we, do, we still need offices. We just don't need them for certain types of work. And that's something I think most businesses have now sort of discovered, frankly. We need them for serendipity. We need them for team meetings and collaboration, but we don't need them to sit there checking things. And what about the changes in management style that you've noticed? I think, I mean, I think the first thing is learning to manage people who you will be, you know, who will be working remotely. So we've had to change all of our management training. So to help managers get used to managing teams remotely and people that they're not physically with. I think that looking at training, moving the, making sure the training can actually work in online settings and really thinking about when you're going to insist that people are going to be doing things together physically and when they're, when and when not. And I, I think a complete free for all is unlikely to work, to be honest. So you are going to have to have some sort of structure. It may be that you just say you go to work on Tuesday, Wednesday and Thursday, and maybe some other teams go on Monday, Tuesday and Wednesday, but some of these are just I think really just rethinking why we why what we're doing what your people are doing in different places and what support they need is going to be really important so I'm now going to jump out of this taxi and walk into my my current office how completely convenient I love the live documentary podcast effect you're giving us Ben Page has now successfully transferred transitioned from the nowhere office of the taxi to the nowhere office of his very bijou, newly renovated, if only you could see it, house. So sit yourself down, Ben, because we want to talk now about you and your career. Yeah, so I'm, I suppose it's all about, uh, or at least in the first instance, about yeah. data and numbers and understanding what data tells us is, was data always a thing for you were you into it before it became cool and fashionable well I guess uh, having done the job for 34 years you can probably say yes but actually no I, I don't think data data may have become fashionable with um 
the rise of the internet over the last 20 years. But, you know, people have always used data. My industry sort of begins actually in the late 19th century with Booth's, Booth's surveys of London or even some earlier Victorians like Mr. Mayhew and his London characters, you know. So um, I was a historian at university. I did history at university. And of course, you're using all sorts of economic statistics, demog demographic statistics, which have been around since the 17th century or, or earlier. So I, 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 did, I, mean, I fell into this job by accident. I had absolutely no intention of being a market researcher. And when I joined Mori, I had no intention of staying more than two years. And then when I'd been there for 10 years, I would never have dreamt in a million years that I'd end up as chief executive for over a decade. But data is sort of fundamental. It's, it's, it's what's made the modern world. I mean, the Venetians are, you know, and the, the Italians are inventing accounting in the Renaissance. There's, there's data. Uh, so it's got a pretty good history. It's got a pretty long history, actually, in humanity. And it's uh, you, you can't really imagine the modern world without it. And you're having to completely rethink how you gather that data. Did you ever see the world in this way, your office going down this direction? No. When I started work, the Internet was, you know, just something people were beginning to talk about. It, when I started work, we didn't even have personal computers. <laughs> we it was they were used by strange, fierce people. Did, did typing on them. Uh, we used calculators. I used to do charts by drawing round cups. So no, the, the the amount of data, the speed of the speed, we can do things in one second now that used to take me four hours when I started work. So no, and and of course the range of data sources are multiply all the time. I think the, the the fun, the ironic thing is we did a business plan 20 years ago where we described what the company would be like in 2020. And we said that by 2020, we would have ceased all data collection because there would be so much information freely available that we, the question would be just to analyze it. And yet last year I sent out, you know, 20 million questionnaires by post for, for all sorts of good reasons. So we're still, I mean, like the media, interestingly, my industry becomes more and more diverse it becomes more and more fragmented in terms of the channels and tools that we have available to us but things take a very long time to die completely and in fact perhaps never die print print magazines are magazines going to completely die they haven't they're having a difficult time and obviously they're moving online but there's the, you know you can still buy print magazines and people like the sensation so some of the things that we do at the moment we're doing a lot of distance interviewing where we physically chase people down politely and make contact with them but then we might talk to them on the telephone from outside or from you know the interviewer might go home again and speak to them like we are now. What about though the the management of people in the work setting so you've spoken really eloquently about the end of the office for work and presenteeism around computers and more for collaboration and so on conferences, entertaining? I mean, are you planning a Christmas party? I think that stuff all matters. I mean, I'm, I'm not ever going to fly to Riyadh in Saudi Arabia again for a two-hour meeting. I am never going to do that, like, you know, ever again. I've done that far too many times. But I do think that, I think physical conferences where you meet people who you find interesting are still going to have a place, particularly once the pandemic is gone. Meeting people in real life, there is, you can, you know, I, I have catch-ups with people and contacts using this, you know, using Zoom or MS Teams all the time, but there is nothing to, still nothing to beat having, having a meal with somebody to really sort of talk to them about things. So I think all of that stuff's there, but I do think business travel, 
pretty pointless and expensive and time-consuming business travel doesn't really it was wasn't very effective or necessary will be massively reduced I think we can be almost certain of that although someone very senior at McKinsey told me last week that they think business travel numerically will return by 2025 but what we agreed was that it will be sort of different patterns of behavior so it'll sort of be different geographies different entrance into that market do you agree with that I, I guess so. I mean, I, I just think there were two. There are lots of times when people felt they had to be there physically in the room in order to do a pitch or something like that. But if it's a formal thing and it's just about sharing some documents or something, really, do you do you actually need to be there? And I think we'll just review that. Certainly, in terms of running projects, for example, which is obviously what we do. I think we will, um, you know, we will probably meet clients physically less often and our clients will expect to meet us physically less often. They themselves will be working in a more distributed way. So I do think that overall, I'd be interested if McKinsey, I'd be interested to know, 2025, maybe it will be back. But I think people will look at the improved profitability that they've achieved during the pandemic by cutting a lot of these costs. One estimate we did for the CBI was that one in five offices will, will be seen as surplus to requirements mm -hmm. overall. I closed my Oxford office, my Manchester office during the pandemic. The business is running, is performing better than ever. Um, and the, you know, the people in those places are working fine. Um, so I think I, I do think we won't literally just say, oh, well, let's all just go to Paris for a meeting. We'll, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll value those meetings more. We'll think about them a little bit more creatively because the double whammy is not just the pandemic and the cost, but also climate change. And we've got to make, we've got to do some heavy lifting on carbon in the 2020s to have any chance now of hitting the 2050 type targets. Mm -hmm. And so I think you'll have, for all these reasons, we will personally, I think I'll bet a little bit against McKinsey and say I don't think it'll bounce back in quite the same, to quite the same extent. I just I think this is a very good example of what I wanted to ask Ben next, actually, which is the, this difference or the, the conflict between data and judgment. And I'm yeah. just interested what your clients say to you privately when you when you and your team are presented impeccable, uh, immaculate data, or at least the very best data that you can get. And then they ask you perhaps what your opinion is, what, what your judgment is. What, how does that work in reality? Well, I mean, I think what's interesting is that when you're gathering data, obviously there's always margins of error and judgments. And you're asking, you're often asking people at one point about what might, what their behavior might be in the future. And people actually find it quite hard to describe their future behavior. So judgment remains hugely important. And I think subjective, the, you know, pretending that data is ever objective or ever final is i mean you know you can get better and worse data but it's all prone to biases even just choosing what you choose to look at or which questions you choose to ask uh is is in itself a judgment and so there's huge levels of subjectivity and of course in theory you know empirical experience uh, evidence etc what's happened in the past but a lot of the time you know people people don't i mean i always joke that about half our work is completely wasted either because <laughs> The clients can't actually implement what the findings are telling them to do uh, that's the first one b uh, or because they actually just don't want to they choose not to and finally c because you know perhaps we've failed somewhere in terms of how we've how we've communicated it so you know it's a it's an it, it's an interesting process but yes i think i mean i actually originally studied history and one of the interesting things about that is that you know, I, it, was, it took me a first a year of undergraduate study because I'm pretty I'm a slow I'm slow on the uptake. 
to realize that actually, you know, we don't really know much about what King John I was thinking when he signed Magna Carta or anything else. We have a set of documents and then we tell stories about it. And actually it's the same with data. We don't ever have the complete data of ev about everything and everybody's, what everybody's thinking or doing. And so we, we always have incomplete data and we're always having to try and sort of produce a version of reality hopefully that accords with things that may or may not happen. I mean, it is, there's an element of you know, putting that together for busy people who haven't got time to look at all of the information themselves to, and to use your best judgment to help people make decisions with effectively with a short story. It's like, you know, you get in the lift with Tony Blair, what does he, he asks you, what, what is this all about, Ben? And then, you, you know, you've got, the, we always call it the lift test. You've got, to, you've got to tell him very quickly in the lift, right? You can't start saying, well, 25% of people thought this and 4% thought this and 6% thought this, uh, which is obviously the market researcher's uh, problem. Well, Ben, thanks so much. I'm, I'm delighted that you've confirmed my bias that there is still room for judgment uh, because then otherwise, what would be the point of having any columnists at all? I mean, we've got to have some judgment as well as data. We hope based on evidence and the sort of marvellous data that Ipsos Mori has been giving us for so many years. But thanks so much for spending us spending some time with us today on the road and back at the desk as well. Oh, he's such a class act, isn't he, Stefan? Yes, and actually refreshingly uh, modest, if you like, and keeping his claims about the data in proportion, not saying that he has found the answers to everything just because he's got all the numbers and the regression analyses. So we're going to end today's episode with a preview from what will be the last in the first series this summer of the Nowhere Office. It's a special one, a one-to-one -one conversation I had with the legendary professor of organisational psychology, Sir Kerry Cooper, who knows more about the office and the Nowhere Office and the in-between office than pretty much anybody else. This is a total reset of where and how we work a reset of how we're managed, a reset of location, a reset on mental health, maybe even a reset. We, I think the, the, the jury's out on this, but maybe even a major reset on the role of men in the family, because I think that is really fundamental. Incidentally, the hybrid model will not work if men migrate back to the central office full time and leave women to work as they did pre-pandemic on a flexible working arrangement and take on the responsibility of childcare and elder care as well as working. So that's it for this episode. I'm Julia Hobsbawm and thank you so much for listening to this episode with myself and Stefan Stern. Our wonderful guests were Mark Eltringham, Joanna Swash, and last but by no means least, Ben Page. And don't forget, you can listen to our previous episodes by going to wherever you get your podcasts from and then subscribing to The Nowhere Office. Follow the show on Twitter, that's at The Nowhere Offie One, and share your stories of The Nowhere Office. Our producer is Callum McRae, and this is an Editorial Intelligence production.